What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. What is the state of our union? I think the state of our union is worried. We are worried about global warming. We're worried about all the lobbyists running government. We just we just uh, learned today or actually yesterday, I guess. uh, Yeah, I've got the article to go off on today. We just learned that another scientist who worked for Koch Industries, Koch Industries owns Georgia Pacific, the big paper company, Georgia Pacific apparently has a problem with contaminating land with a particular class of chemicals. This guy is now working at the EPA trying to make sure that those chemicals are not regulated or not regulated the way, you know, it's just, it's like, this is so weird. So anyhow, we're worried about global warming. Trump is doing not only nothing about that, he's making the situation worse. He pulled us out of Paris. The lobbyists running the government. We're worried that the economy is going to crash. We just added a trillion and a half dollars to our national debt last year. We're going to add another trillion to it this year. It's it's getting, you know, it's getting to the point where, you know, back in uh, 1980, when Ronald Reagan was worrying out loud about the national debt, and it was at $800 billion, less than $1 trillion. Of course, he tripled it. But, you know, back then, the Republicans were like, oh, my God, if the national debt gets too big, it's going to be a real problem because of all the interest payments. Well, we're there. We're concerned about that. We're concerned. We're worried that Trump is going to start a war or insert us into a war. You know, the Sudan is melting down. Yemen is is in a famine right now as a result of this brutal war against them by Saudi Arabia, which we are aiding and abetting and, and, and providing weapons for. We are worried about the children who've been ripped from their mother's arms at the border, and we're worried that now the Trump administration is saying that thousands of these children will never be reunited with their families because that would be too traumatic. And it would, it, it's too much effort for the Trump administration to do this. You know, it would take 100 people working on this project. And, you know, we just can't hire 100 people to reunite these children. So to tell with them, you know. Um, so we're worried about the children who've been ripped from their mother's arms at the border. We're, we're worried that Trump has sold this country out to tin pot dictators around the world, that he's sucking up to Duterte and, and, and Putin and Erdogan. And I mean, you know, pick your authoritarian leader. Trump loves them all. I don't know if you saw the ad during the Super Bowl for Netflix's Handmaid's Tale. It's just extraordinary what Mike Pence, I mean, you know, is he going to pass a law saying that, you know, men can't eat alone with women? That's the law that he lives by, that in business, men shouldn't travel with women if they're not married. I mean, you know, what's coming with a Pence presidency? We're also worried because many of us are one paycheck away from living on the street. The next medical crisis might be unaffordable. Even if you have insurance, the the average deductible and insurance policies in the United States on employer-based insurance policies, which is what most people have, is around $4,000. Most people can't sustain a $500, you know, half Americans can't sustain a $500 expense. But most of all, we're worried about what Trump might do that we can't yet imagine. 
I mean, you know, when, when you govern by whim, you get a worried electorate. I got an email from Eric Trump uh, about 20 minutes ago. Dear Fred Flintstone, we are sick of hearing the media say that we don't have a voice. Today that ends. You can prove the media wrong while the world watches my father's critical, all caps, critical State of the Union address. The official Donald J. Trump for President live stream of the speech will display the names of all the patriots who choose to make a contribution for the world to see. Please make a contribution of $42 in the next three hours to have your name proudly displayed live during the President's State of the Union address. Official State of the Union donor list. President Trump hopes to see your name contribute here. Yeah, they are. These grifters are hustling money on the State of the Union. Can you imagine if Obama had done that? I mean, you, virtually everything they're up to, I'm saying, can you imagine if Obama had done that? But let's start with some serious, sober, thoughtful, the world could end because of nuclear war. What are we going to do about this kind of stuff? On the line with us is Derek Johnson. He's the executive director of Global Zero. GlobalZero.org is the website. You can tweet him at Derek J. GZ or at Global Zero. Derek, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. What was the INF Treaty? Where did this come from? Why should we be concerned about this? And why is Donald Trump getting us out of this treaty? Goodness, that's a great, great place to start. So the INF Treaty has been around for about 30 years. This was a, a Reagan-Gorbachev agreement. It was the first of its kind. They eliminated an entire category of nuclear weapons. These were short-range and medium-range nuclear missiles that had basically you know, terrorized Europe for most of the Cold War. Reagan and Gorbachev sat down, agreed to get rid of these things, sent thousands of nuclear missiles to the scrap heap, and helped bring about the end of the Cold War, this treaty. Mm -hmm. Or while the Trump administration is shredding it... <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Hang on, just a second. The excuse that they gave was that Russia is not in compliance. And my understanding is that the noncompliance that Russia had been involved with didn't have to do with building, you know, battlefield nukes and smaller intermediate range nukes, which is what this treaty bans, but instead had to do with, I believe, a radar system that was too closely positioned to one of the NATO countries, Poland or something. And apparently, you know, they're claiming that we're also in breach. Was the breach so severe as to justify doing away with the treaty? Because now my understanding is that Putin is saying, cool, you know, without this treaty, we're actually, we've got this hypersonic travels five times faster than sound uh, missile that we can launch from a plane that's going to come out. It's a kind of a glider that's undetectable by radar. And we're, and we're also building uh, smaller weapons that we're going to use in a European theater, possibly. What do I have wrong about that, first of all? Yeah. So there's been a dispute around this treaty for a number of years. We've got mutual allegations of cheating on both sides. You have the Americans are saying that Russia has developed a missile that is, flies within that prohibited range, that the Russians have deployed this in violation of the treaty. On the flip side, you have the Russians, of course, who deny that um, and say, well, you know, the Americans have deployed missile defense systems that can very easily and quickly be sort of retooled to fire prohibited missiles. Hmm. So the Americans are upset with the Russians, the Russians are upset with the Americans, and this has been a bit of an impasse for even going back to the Obama administration. But what's, I think, remarkably alarming here is that the, the Trump administration's answer to that problem is to just shred the treaty and remove all restraints on all nuclear weapons, which to me makes no sense. If the United States doesn't want Russia to build INF-prohibited weapons, then why on earth would we get rid of the treaty that's keeping them from doing that? Because as you said... The immediate response to this is the United States is ending the treaty. We're going to start building INF-prohibited systems. And Russia says, oh, great, you're going to do that. We're going to do the same thing. Now it's off to a new nuclear arms race. Right. We're talking with Derek Johnson of Global Zero. My understanding is that this new generation of what are sometimes referred to as battlefield nukes, you know, low-yield nuclear weapons that could be deployed in a, a World War II kind of scenario, you know, an intra-Europe World War II kind of scenario, are... You know, we say that they're very small because they're on the kiloton range rather than the megaton range, but that was Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Weren't those, you know, less than a megaton nuclear devices? Yeah, exactly. Look, there's no such thing as a small nuclear weapon. I mean, the low-yield label is a bit of a misnomer. You know, a nuke is a nuke is a nuke. The bombs that annihilated Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, by today's standards, small nuclear weapons. The real danger about 
smaller nuclear weapons is that they're more tempting to use in a crisis. These sort of armchair strategists and military planners think that you can use one of these things and have a lower risk of sort of escalation to all nuclear war. But I think that just ignores the realities on the ground. You know, the second that you introduce a nuclear weapon to a conflict, that is a global event. That's going to change the game if all bets are off. Which is the number one reason to not abandon the INF, this treaty. But the treaty is dead now. So what do we do next? Let's say, you know, in a year and a half, two years, uh, we've got a new president, right? <laughs> so we've got a new president and the challenge is before us, you know, we really don't want an international arms race. And, and, and there is one point that I think the opponents of this treaty have made that that is something that we really need to seriously consider. And that is that Russia is a relatively small country. They've got an economy the size of Texas. They can build nuclear weapons, but you know, in the grand scheme of things on a global level, outside of the possibility of nuclear war, they are not our biggest threat. China has now, you know, the Chinese economy in the last few months has actually surpassed the American economy. And China is building out their military in ways that are just absolutely rapid and breathtaking. A lot of their infrastructure has to do with military support. It's difficult to distinguish their military from their civilian stuff. There's concern that their, their military is involved with some of these companies that are making equipment used in the U.S. for telecommunications and even, you know, for defense. I mean, we can't build uh, cruise missiles without Chinese chips now. So shouldn't we, and China was never part of the INF, of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. So shouldn't we be trying to create a worldwide version of this rather than just a U.S.-Russia version? So a couple things. First of all, I think it's a little premature to say the INF Treaty is dead. What happened on Saturday was the U.S. announced its intent to withdraw. And that basically sets off a six-month timer. It's a six-month process to pull your country out of the treaty. So there okay. actually is still time for the U.S. to get its act together and get, uh, and get back into the negotiating room, which I hope they do. And they've made some indications that they would be open to talks. Mm -hmm. Short of that, yeah, I think if come August, no sort of the U.S. and Russia don't seize on some sort of acceptable resolution to this dispute, then INF goes away and you have an opening for the U.S. and Russia to really go gangbusters on a whole new category of weapon systems. Mm. Uh, that's a big problem. It doesn't necessarily mean that's what's going to happen. These are not weapon systems that the U.S. wants or that the U.S. needs. There's no, there's no big constituency pushing for this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these things take time and um, require quite a bit of fun. And there's already been a bill introduced in Congress by Senator Merkley and others that would not allow funding to go to, you know, R&D and development of these, of, the, of these weapons. So it's not, you know, it's not... You're going to have a hard time with that, though, if the Russians are building them. No, that's true. That's true. As to your second point about China, yes, absolutely. Arms control across the board needs to be multilateralized. You know, there's nine nations on Earth that have nuclear weapons. Only two are engaged, over the last 30 years, have engaged in arms control discussions. It is time to bring China into the conversation. It's time to bring India. It's time to bring Pakistan and others. Right. But I don't think that if you're concerned about Chinese military buildup, the answer is not to shred an agreement between the U.S. and Russia that keeps them from embarking on an arms race of their own. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amazing stuff. Derek Johnson, he is the executive director of Global Zero. And globalzero.org is the website. Derek GZ or Global Zero are the Twitter handles. Derek, thanks for dropping by. Thanks so much. Great talking with you and fascinating conversation. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. 
Our book today is Midnight in Chernobyl, The Untold Story of the World's Greatest Nuclear Disaster by Adam Higginbotham. This is from the prologue. <clears throat> Saturday, April 26, 1986, 4.16 p.m., Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station, Ukraine. Senior Lieutenant Alexander Logachev loved radiation the way other men love their wives. Tall and good-looking, 26 years old, with close-cropped dark hair and ice-blue eyes, Logachev had joined the Soviet Army when he was still a boy. They had trained him well. The instructors from the military academy outside Moscow taught him with lethal poisons and unshielded radiation. He traveled to the testing grounds of Semipalatinsk in Kazakhstan and to the desolate East Urals Trace, where the fallout from a clandestine radioactive accident still poisoned the landscape. Eventually, Logachev's training took him even to the remote and forbidden islands of Novaya Zemlya, high in the Arctic Circle, and ground zero for the detonation of the terrible Tsar Bomba, the largest thermonuclear device in history. Now, as the lead radiation reconnaissance officer of the 427th Red Banner Mechanized Regiment of the Kiev District Civil Defense Force, Logoshev knew how to protect himself and his three-man crew from nerve agents, biological weapons, gamma rays, and hot particles by doing their work just as the textbooks dictated, by trusting his dosimetry equipment, and when necessary, reaching for the nuclear, bacterial, and chemical warfare medical kits stored in the cockpit of their armored car. But he also believed that the best protection was psychological. These men who allowed themselves to fear radiation were most at risk. But those who came to love and appreciate its spectral presence, to understand its caprices, could endure even the most intense gamma bar bombardment and emerge as healthy as before. As he sped through the suburbs of Kiev that morning at the head of a, a column of more than 30 vehicles summoned to an emergency at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, Logoshev had every reason to feel confident. The spring air blowing through the hatches of his armored scout car carried the smell of the trees and the freshly cut grass. His men gathered on the parade ground just the night before for their monthly inspection were drilled and ready. At his feet, a battery of radiological detection instruments, including a newly installed electronic device twice as sensitive as the old model, murmured softly, revealing nothing unusual in the atmosphere around them. But as they finally approached the plant later that morning, it became clear that something extraordinary had happened. The alarm on the radiation dosimeter first sounded as they passed the concrete signpost marking the perimeter of the power station grounds, and the lieutenant gave orders to stop the vehicle and log their findings. 51 Rochins per hour. If they waited here just 60 minutes, they would all absorb the maximum dose of radiation permitted Soviet troops during wartime. They drove on following the line of high voltage transmission towers that marched toward the horizon in the direction of the power plant. Their readings climbed still further before falling again. Then as the armored car rumbled along the concrete bank of the station's cooling canal, the outline of the fourth unit of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant finally became visible and Logoshov and his crew gazed at it in silence. The roof of the 20-story building had been torn open, its other upper levels blackened and collapsed into heaps of rubble. They could see shattered panels of ferro-concrete, tumbled blocks of graphite, and here and there the glittering metal casings of fuel assemblies from the core of a nuclear reactor. A cloud of steam drifted from the wreckage into the sunlit sky. Yet they had orders to conduct a full reconnaissance of the plant. Their armored car crawled counterclockwise around the complex at 10 kilometers an hour. Sergeant Vlaskin called out the radiation readings from the new instruments, and Logoshev scribbled them down on a map, hand-drawn on a sheet of parchment paper in ballpoint pen and colored marker. One Rochin per hour, then two, then three. They turned left, and the figures began to rise quickly. 10, 30, 50, 100. 250 Rochins an hour, the sergeant shouted, his eyes widening. Comrade Lieutenant, he began and pointed at the radiometer. Logoshev looked down at the digital readout and felt his scalp prickle with terror. 2,080 Rochins an hour, an impossible number. Logoshev struggled to remain calm and remember the textbook to conquer his fear. But his training failed him, and the lieutenant heard himself screaming in panic at the driver, petrified that the vehicle would stall. Why are you going this way, you son of a bee? Are you out of your effing mind? If this thing dies, we'll all be corpses in 15 minutes. Part one, chapter one, the Soviet Prometheus. At the slow beat of approaching rotor blades, blackbirds rose into the sky, scattering over the frozen meadows 
and the pearly knots of creeks and ponds lacing the Pripyat River Basin. Far below, standing knee-deep in snow, his breath lingering in heavy clouds, Viktor Brukhanov awaited the arrival of the nomenklatura from Moscow. When the helicopter touched down, the delegation of ministers and Communist Party officials trudged together over the icy field. The savage cold gnawed at their heavy woolen coats and nipped beneath their tall fur hats. The head of the Ministry of Energy and Electrification of the USSR and senior party bosses from the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine joined Brukhanov at the spot where their audacious new project was to begin. Just 34 years old, clever and ambitious, a dedicated party man, Brukhanov had come to western Ukraine with orders to begin building what would become the greatest nuclear power station on Earth. Midnight in Chernobyl. Sarah underscore SKG underscore 1983 has uh, tweeted this out in reply to Donald Trump. She's got this graphic. Trump supporters just got their tax rates, rebates from the IRS and their responses. LOL. We tried to tell all you morons, but no, he was your savior and he wouldn't do that to you. But this is only the beginning. And here's some of the tweets. I just did my taxes and paid in and made the same as last year. I owe $4,000 more. WTF, I voted for Trump, but will not be in the next election. Here's another one. This is from uh, A9N7G3. Worst tax return I had in a decade. I admit I voted for Trump, but he has officially lost my vote for 2020. Here's another one to, tweeting to Senator Schumer. Senator Schumer, well, you were right about taxes going up. I'm a Republican and I was wrong big time. It doesn't change. I am not voting for him. All my buddies are really mad they voted for him now. Here's another one uh, from April Henderson. We're paying $5,000 more in taxes for 2018. Imagine our surprise. We voted for you. We've advocated for you. I've lost lifelong friends in support of you. I am truly disappointed. Not only have our taxes increased, but you've done nothing to fix our health care. This is from Matt Davis. Uh, Donald Trump, I trusted and voted for you. Now screwed by you. I don't get the $5,000 return I've gotten in the last three years. Money my family depends on to start us over. I serve my country honorably. I will not make the same mistake twice. And it goes on from there. I mean, there's several more. Ed Krasenstein is uh, tweeting. He, he, he says, Hillary Clinton loses emails and Republicans chant, lock him up, lock her up. Donald Trump loses children, thousands of them, and Republicans chant four more years. If you still don't think this is some sort of sick, twisted cult, maybe it's time to reevaluate your priorities as Americans. Meanwhile, Trump said he was going to fix drug prices. Bernie Sanders is asking, in fact, he's formally asking this company, Catalyst is the name of the company. The disease is Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome. It's a rare neuromuscular disorder. The drug FERDAPS was uh, offered for, this, for treating this for years and years for free. And then this hustler, these hustlers, Catalyst, this Florida-based company, bought the rights to it and raise the price to $375,000. If you have this rare disorder, this drug keeps you alive, they raise the price to $375,000 from free. So, so what's your state of the union? My, my, you know, I'm rather concerned, shall we say? Not quite fearful, but big time concerned about all these things, this, this whole list that I just went through with you. We'll see. Uh, let's see here, Lowell in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Lowell, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hey, uh, Tom, I, I think the State of the Union is complete economic anxiety. And, you know, why I say that is because 55% of the workers aged 55 to 64, meaning the people about to retire, have zero saved for retirement. And, you know, the unfortunate part is the Democrats have only been able to offer free market solutions like a 401k. But 401ks were designed for high-income earners to save money tax-free in addition to a pension. Right. And this is the whole lie that keeps getting sold to workers like, oh, you, well, everyone will be a millionaire by the time you retire because the market does so great. Oh, I remember when they were pitching well, this during the Reagan administration. This is where it all started with IRAs and then 401ks. Yeah, but the problem is the low-wage workers can't donate much of anything to their um, retirements. And since we've shifted the burden onto workers, I say we need to do a forced subsidy of 401ks to get it such that every worker can get to the maximum 401k contribution every year. 
Well, that would be one way to do it. The other would be to simply, as Democrats are proposing to do right now, raise the payments uh, that Social Security makes to the point that you can actually retire on Social Security in most parts of the country and fund that by lifting the cap on who contributes when. They're, they're talking now about raising it to $400,000. I'd raise it only to 250000 or for that matter, just do away with it altogether. I don't see why somebody making between $120,000 a year and $400,000 a year doesn't have to pay into Social Security. That doesn't make any sense to me. But, you know, it's very straightforward stuff. But Lowell, spot on. That's a great statistic and important information. Johnny in Lamarck, Texas. Hey, Johnny, what's up? Hey, Tom, you were asking everybody for their State of the Union. I have a simple 7.1, and I've also got a rhetorical question for Donnie. Donnie, I know you like Fox and you don't listen to free speech TV, but some of your staff probably do. So you're a one-pager. You love Fox TV. You love eating fast food all day and tweeting. How does that qualify you to tell anybody what the State of the Union is? Good question. Suicide's going up. Food banks at airports to feed government employees. We've got so-called Catholic students mocking Native Americans. We've got charter school scams, stealing taxpayer money and dumbing down kids. We've got Republican campers vandalizing national park land and facilities. And we've got a hostage taker in the Oval Office who, instead of negotiating in honest, earnest, good faith, he takes the government as hostage. We're tired of all this winning, Donnie. You're fired. Yeah, there you go. Okay, thank you, Johnny. Very well said. So, but, but Johnny really nailed it. I, this, this is such a bizarre administration. It's like every day there's some new horror. And, you know, the latest being this this guy from Coke Industries now overseeing the chemical part of the EPA. I mean, it's just it's just bizarre. Don't you just love it when something that's already amazing gets better? Well, that's the case with the X chair. The makers have taken what is arguably the most comfortable and supportive office chair in the world and made it even better by introducing wider seats in the X3 and X4 models of the X chair. That means extra support for those of us with wider bases. The good people at X chair are constantly innovating to help improve your working comfort and productivity. And now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com, or call 1-844-4X chair. X chair comes with a 30 day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com. Tom Harmon here with you, and there's a lot of news going on, a lot of stuff to talk about today, but net neutrality is a pretty important one. This is basically the Internet has become our communications commons. It's how most of us communicate with each other via email and messages and things like that. It is how many of us, if not most of us, get most of our news these days. It's a big deal. And on the line with us is Yosef Getachu with Common Cause. Yosef is the media and democracy program director and an attorney. I Welcome to the program, and am I pronouncing your name right? Yes, my name is Yosef Gitachu, and thanks for having me, Tom. Gitachu. Okay, thank you, Yosef. Yeah. Tell us about what is happening right now. There's this lawsuit against the FCC, I believe, about them blowing up the net neutrality situation. What's going on? Sure. So just to give everyone a bit of background, back in 2015, the Federal Communications Commission adopted a set of net neutrality rules that basically told your internet service provider that you could not block or throttle any content or charge special fees to create fast lanes, giving certain websites professional treatment over others. They use a legal framework called Title II of the Telecommunications Act, which, not to get too wonky, basically says that broadband is a telecommunication service or it's a, a telephone service where data is just being transferred from one point to another. And that was the basic legal framework. The way that this worked with the phone company was that basically they said to the telephone companies, which is what Title II was designed for, you may not listen in on somebody's phone call and bill them based on who they're talking to. Uh, you can't charge less to talk to grandma or more to talk to your employer or more to talk to a customer. Uh, you can separate business and personal calls you know, with, with different billing schemes, 
But that's, again, not based on listening in on what you're doing. And so with the Internet, they're saying basically the same thing. You can't charge me a different price if I'm sending an email to my wife than you do if I'm doing it for business. Or you can't charge me a different price or deliver information to me at a different speed or even block information depending on where it's coming from. Everything has to be treated the same. Do I have that right? That's correct. It's this idea that all data within the network has to be treated equally. Your ISP can't all of a sudden slow down Netflix in favor of Hulu or right. can all of a sudden... And all that changed a year ago when, when, uh, when yeah. the uh, former Verizon attorney who, who Trump had put in as uh, head of the FCC decided to hell with that. Uh, I want to make some more money for Verizon. Uh, in 2017, you had FCC chairman Ajit Pai re- not only repeal that framework we had in 2015, but completely remove the FCC's authority over broadband. So... Since 2017, we haven't had any rules that could prevent or prohibit your ISP from blocking, throttling, or engaging in these paid prioritization schemes. But more importantly, there hasn't been any cop on the beat actually looking into these bad behaviors just because the FCC said flat out, we have no authority over this space. We can't do anything. And so you're, you're pretty much on your own as a consumer, and you're subject to the whims of these monopoly telecommunications uh, and cable providers who are providing you with the internet. Mm-hmm. And so what we saw was a number of public interest groups, uh, state attorney generals, companies that provide website services like Mozilla sue the FCC last year for completely repealing the rules and removing its authority over broadband. Mm-hmm. And so um, throughout the course of litigation, we had oral arguments uh, in court on Friday. And what we saw from oral arguments was the FCC completely and utterly failed to defend its repeal of net neutrality. Just to get back to your question about telephone services and broadband services, Judge Millett, one of the judges on the panel, flat out asked the FCC counsel, how is this different from telephone networks? Isn't data just being transferred from one point to another? And, you know, he tried to explain, well, you know, information is being transformed and it's not the same as telephone. But she, she actually pressed on on this line of questioning saying, well, if I'm using the telephone and say I want to call my pharmaceutical company to get a prescription and I'm pressing a bunch of numbers and I'm all of a sudden filling that prescription, isn't that the same as going onto the Internet and going to different websites and getting my prescription through a website and making a couple clicks? And he couldn't answer this basic question. It just goes to the reason that broadband is a telecommunication service. Yosef, are you optimistic now that the court is going to knock down Ajit Pai's destruction of net neutrality? Well, I'm confident that the attorneys who represent the public interest organizations and the state attorney generals and the corporations, the companies who provide website services, made very, very strong arguments. No, I get, I get all that, but do you think that, yeah. th- that it's going to prevail? Uh, you know, I can say right now we're confident. Um, I think there was a lot of good questions that were asked that poked holes at the FCC's arguments. They couldn't defend the basic classification of Internet, which gets to the crux of how they were trying to repeal this. And so we'll have to wait and see. I'm just very hopeful and confident. When will we know? That, you know, the court schedules take time. I would say maybe the next few months, this summer. We're talking with uh, Yosef Katachu, who is the Media and Democracy Program Director with Common Cause and an attorney, commoncause.org, the website. What can people do who want to help push this along and bring back net neutrality? So there's a couple things uh, that people can do. Uh, Common Cause uh, is a nonprofit organization with uh, 1.2 million grassroots members and activists. And one of the things we do, we encourage individuals to speak out when we see these injustices by uh, people who abuse power. Uh, and so if you, are a diff- uh, if you are a stakeholder that cares about this, talking to your member of Congress, talking to your state uh, representative, talking to local representatives, explaining why you care about net neutrality, because this issue just affects everyone in so many different ways, whether you are a small business owner, whether you are a student in school and you need the Internet to do your homework, whether you are trying to get a diverse source of news on the internet, conservative or liberal. The, the internet is so ubiquitous that it impacts our democracy in so many ways. So engaging so, with 
different lawmakers on this issue is critical. Okay, so reach out to your members of Congress. Uh, the telephone number for the Congressional Switchboard is 202-225-3121. Yosef, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And people can also find more information over at CommonCause.org, of course. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and loving what you do. Ellen Ratner's new book on the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News. Joining us from New York, Luke Vargas. So what's up in the world today? I think on Venezuela, I have the most questions you know, the White House keeps emphasizing that we're working with other governments on this policy. And to the extent that we've you know, convinced other countries to go along with the Guaido recognition, I suppose that's true. But I also see the U.S. as having really gone far and above other countries in taking on risk here. For instance, with respect to humanitarian aid, we keep hearing, oh, you know, the U.S. and other countries are delivering aid, you know, trying to mobilize aid to help the people of Venezuela. Well, look at actually what countries are doing. Canada yesterday put $53 million towards aid to Venezuela, but it's going to countries in the region who are taking in refugees. Mm. Germany, for instance, is putting a hold on aid that was going to go to the Maduro government. Um, But the U.S. is doing something entirely different also, which I think is the riskiest, sending aid to this Colombian border town. And then we're sort of waiting to see if there's going to be an attempt made and by whom to actually bring medicine over the border where the Venezuelan army is mustering. And so you can sort of say, oh, we're all in this together. But it's really the U.S., possibly even the U.S. military with respect to that border aid delivery that I think is putting its neck out there. And I, I really want to just get a sense if there's an expectation that we're sort of willing to let that aid sit there in Colombia and be something of a photo op you know, and, and, and nothing wow. more than that. Or like, could this you know, become the next Gulf of Tonkin incident? You know, if, right. if we try to cross the border, yeah. somebody gets killed. It's suddenly, remember the Maine. I mean, we've been in two wars as a consequence of this kind of stuff, even if they were made up in both cases, you know, the, the Spanish-American no, War and, and Vietnam. Yeah, you're right. Uh, are we comfortable letting it be a statement piece? A little bit like we got countries to say they're not going to recognize Crimea, but we didn't push to arm groups immediately or intervene ourselves, you know, and we just sort of for years to come point back to that and say, hey, well, we're, we didn't OK this. Right. Uh, and I think that that will come down to sort of a decision on the part of the U.S., whether we're willing to take a more sustained, possibly smarter approach. I don't know, maybe work with China to try and convince them not to, uh, to, to deal with Maduro or do we bluster in and, you know, aggravate the situation, which really, I think, at the end of the day, would probably just Uh, bolster Maduro. So that's something I'll be listening for. On Afghanistan, we're getting a sense, and I think we saw this in a tweet over the weekend from the president, that he really is now committed to an exit from that country, basically saying, uh, hey, it's time to start coming home. This is a tweet, and quote, after many years to start spending our money wisely, end quote. Funny is the first part of that tweet, I think, reflected a complete misrepresentation of what's going on. He said, look, we're spending so much money there. We've bombed the heck out of them, and now they're basically suing for peace. That's not at all the prerequisite that's getting us to this withdrawal, but, but maybe it doesn't matter. Are we willing to sort of let the, the exit rhetoric in Afghanistan uh, sort of be a misrepresentation of the situation there, even if it leads to a pullout? I'll be curious to see how President Trump sort of explains this to the American people. And then finally, I guess I'm, I'm curious about North Korea, uh, even a little bit more so than Syria. This is possibly a newsworthy foreign policy topic. There's been some suggestion we might get a date for this second direct meeting uh, with Kim Jong-un to follow up from Singapore in this speech. And I will just be sort of curious. Um, this is, you know, just a personal curiosity primarily. What, what kind of, you know, logical gymnastics the president has to go through to try to justify why a second meeting is really necessary right now. I mean, it just does not, uh, listening to the U.S. envoy to North Korea talk a few days ago, it's clear the U.S. keeps sort of switching what our strategy is, what bar we're willing or insisting that they cross before we agree to meet again. I don't really see the groundwork has having been sufficiently laid for this meeting. Let's hear what the president has to say. Yeah. Who yeah. is David Malpass? Yeah, the, he, he is the likely new nominee to lead the World Bank. Here's a great bit from his resume. He was the uh, economic advisor to Trump in the 2016 campaign. He was chief economist. This is the funny part. Chief economist at Bear Stearns when that investment bank went belly up uh, during the financial crisis. Uh, I, he's very mistrusting of multilateral institutions. I'm curious where he takes this. 
If he says, look, we need to counter China, they're the ones doing one belt, one road. We don't like the terms they're giving, and thus we're going to present a better alternative. That's great. The real fear is you take the World Bank that really is trying to refocus on dealing with climate change, long-term sort of energy transition issues, and just says, screw it. I don't want anything to do with that. That's the worst case. We're just going to start funding nuclear power plants and big dams again, right? Exactly. That's the fear that they did stop oil and gas investments this year. We'll see if he reverses that. Yeah, amazing. Luke Vargas. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. Great talking with you. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. There's a couple of things that I wanted to just lay on the table and have a conversation with you about. I mentioned, and in fact, I ranted extensively, I suppose, about how brutal and inhuman this uh, Trump refugee separation program is. And now they're claiming that they can't reunite these children because A, it's too much work, and B, even if they do, it's going to damage them emotionally. That's bizarre. I don't, I don't know how to describe it beyond bizarre. Meanwhile, we've got, you know, some, uh, Sherrod Brown came out last week and said, oh, we can't do Medicare for all yet. Let's start with Medicare, you know, for everybody over 50. Well, you know, I get what he's talking about and he's talking political realities and things, but you don't, you know, I'm sorry, Sherrod, he shot himself in the foot terribly with that. We literally have tried everything except Medicare for all in this country. And we're the only country in the world, the developed country in the world, that doesn't have health care for all its citizens. It's crazy. 36% of Americans have high deductible plans where they can have to pay more than $4,000 out of pocket. 36% of Americans. Half Americans, keep in mind, can't afford a $500 expense. 160 million people who are covered by employer-sponsored programs have an average deductible of $1,400 and $2,700 for family coverage. That's nuts, too, when most Americans just can't afford it. So not only do we need Medicare for all, but we also need to start soaking the rich. I mean, it's just very simple. And the reason why is not just because they're rich. It's because it's the right thing to do. It stabilizes economies. If you look back at the time when we had a top income tax rate of 70 to 90 percent, that was from the 1930s until the 1980s, we had the most stable economy and it was growing and middle-income incomes were growing. That built the middle class. That tax built the middle class. And when Reagan repealed that tax, he did so based on a lie that by cutting taxes, you're going to raise tax revenue. It was a lie. Sam Brownback tried it in Kansas four years ago. It destroyed Kansas. Ronald Reagan tried it in America. It destroyed America. We now have a $21 trillion national debt because of Reagan's tax cuts, Bush tax cuts, and Trump's tax cuts. And now a Fox News survey found 70% of Americans agree with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 70% tax after 10 million bucks. 70% of Americans, 54% of Republicans agree with this. Dan Crenshaw, the uh, congressman from Texas, during the big game, he tweets out, should someone propose a 70% tax on the Patriots so NFL competition is more fair and equal? Just asking for a friend. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, she replies to him, well, the average NFL salary is $2.1 million, so most players would never experience a 70% rate. The owners who refuse to hire Kaepernick, however, they would. See that? God bless you, Alexandria. Uh, God bless you, AOC. She really is the new spokesperson for the Democratic Party. The rest of the Democrats haven't figured it out, but she is the person. Meanwhile, we've got this, raising taxes. Then Bernie... This is incredible. Mitch McConnell, Chuck Grassley, and John Thune just rolled out a plan to eliminate the estate tax. This would be a $39 billion tax cut for the Koch brothers, a $63 billion tax break for the Walton family. And Bernie is having nothing to do with it. In fact, he's proposing an alternative. He tweeted out, he said, instead of repealing the estate tax, we should substantially increase this tax on the multimillionaires and billionaires of this country. And in doing so, not only come up with much needed revenue to address the needs needs of working families, but also to reduce wealth inequality in America. And that's what I'm going to do this week. And under Sanders' bill, inherited estates worth more than three and a half million will be taxed at 45%. And if it's over a billion, 77%. 
Now, there's two tricks that the rich people are going to deploy their shills onto television and radio. You will hear these two tricks being played really, really big on right-wing talk radio and Fox News and in right-wing blogs and things because it worked before, right? They did this, you know, during the Reagan time, the tax cuts, they did this when Bill Clinton tried to raise taxes. They did this when George Bush was going to lower taxes. The first is they're going to say that a 77% tax rate on inheritances or 70% tax rate on billionaires is going to hit you. It's going to take you. No, sorry. If you're not leaving an estate worth more than, you know, you and your spouse, 7 million bucks, you're going to see no tax. Zero. And if your income is under $10 million a year, you'll never see that 70% tax rate. So number one, they're going to lie to you about that. They're going to tell you this is, they're trying to tax you. No, they're trying to tax the Koch brothers and the Walton family. And second, they're going to say rich people earned their money. I'm sorry, these kids who are inheriting billions of dollars from their parents did absolutely nothing to earn that money. There should be a tax on the money coming to them. And if a kid is inheriting $10 billion from one of the Walton heirs and has to pay a 70% tax on it, so he only ends up with $3 billion, I'm not crying for that kid. Should you be? I mean, you know, really. The example here Megan Day gives in a piece over at Jacobin Magazine, she says, well, uh, what about Wyatt Koch, the Koch heir? He parties at Mar-a-Lago. Did he build a fortune to build his father and uncle's fortunes? No, he didn't. And beyond that, how is it possible? How is it even possible for anyone to actually earn a billion dollars? I mean, seriously, think about that. If you earn $50,000 a year and you saved every single penny, every single penny, after 20 years, you've saved a million dollars. After 200 years, when you'd be dead, you've saved $10 million. It would take you 20,000 years to save a billion dollars. Nobody gets a billion dollars in exchange for work. They're, it's just not possible. It's not conceivable. Instead, they get that billion dollars for owning enormous companies that employ tens of thousands of people. And the labor of those people is what makes those companies possible. And the money that they're making is the difference between what they're paying their labor and what they're able to skim off the top which is why a high tax rate causes wages, you know, labor's wages to go up. Think about it. If the CEO, you know, if the CEOs went off, you know, went on strike like they did in Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand's book. If the CEOs just, every CEO in America were raptured tomorrow and just vanished for two weeks. How does that affect our economy? It doesn't. But if every employee at every company with a billionaire CEO was raptured for two weeks, it would shut down the whole damn economy. Who's more important, the CEOs or the workers? There is no reason for billionaires to exist. None. And there's absolutely no reason for their children to inherit all of their money. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com T-H-O-M. For three months free with a one-year package, visit expressvpn.com Tom to learn more. Marianne in Seattle. Hey, Marianne, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hi. So I'm thinking about the Medicare for All, and one of the biggest reasons that it's fought so hard, is resisted so hard, is because, you know, you can connect the dots when it comes to all that information being in one spot. If we are taking care of children and adults, um, no matter what their age, and the information comes up that here are all these diseases that are related to, like they do with the coal miners, the lung disease, and they ended up putting this guy 
who's totally about the coal industry in charge of that cabinet position, you get liability uh, connecting the dots, just like they did with the tobacco industry that, you know, is just barely now starting to put out what were supposed to be resolutions with education. And they are the tiniest admissions of here's the connection between, you know, smoking and addiction and lung disease. Mm-hmm. You got oil fracking and the oil industry having non-disclosure agreements now for settlements. And the non-disclosure agreements are for you, your children, and your grandchildren. You can't sue us again. And it's like once you start to put all this stuff together, like we have in the cities, you know, the incidence of diabetes going up, the incidence of all these diseases going up related to pollution and everything, that liability comes home. And it's very clear, you know, how that line points directly to these industries and these particular folks who are benefiting by doing damage to communities in that way. So I think that's huge money that they are fighting hard to just keep as their own, acting like it's a big secret or something. But, yeah, once you get all these diseases, especially with the environmental changes that are going on, if you can look at it and see it happening with Mother Earth, you can look at it and see it happening with each and every individual, but you can see it generation by generation all at once when you get a whole medical care system that is treating this. So I don't think they want people to have access to that information. They didn't want people to be able to say and go to their government. They don't want a government that will support people in that way. I think it even goes beyond that, Marianne. If we had, you know, I pointed out in the past that every cancer diagnosis is worth a half a million dollars to the healthcare industry. We have a system right now where the more people who are obese and thus have diabetes and heart disease, the more money we're making, right? The more people that we have who smoke and are getting cancer and emphysema, the more money we're making. This is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. If you look at countries that have national healthcare systems, look at Australia. In Australia, Mm -hmm. they passed a law that all the tobacco packages have to have a picture on the back of an autopsy photo of a black lung, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, it's just gruesome what the cigarettes look like in Australia. Why? Why would everybody get together and say, let's do this? Because everybody's paying the cost of the healthcare for those people. Countries in Europe, you know, Denmark, they've got a program where more than 50% of the people in the capital city of Denmark now ride their bicycles to work. 50%. Why? Because they wanted to get people healthy because they want to lower their health care costs. There's no incentive to do that here in the United States. The health insurance companies, everybody makes more money the sicker we are. They can jack up their profit margins. They can jack up their co-pays and their deductibles. They can raise the premiums. Everybody's making money on this, and there should not be a profit incentive in healthcare. It's, it's insane. It should be a government function. Marianne, spot on. John Arvin here with you. Patricia in Tuxedo Park, New York. Hey, Patricia, what's on your mind today? With the kidnapped children, if they're not going to be returned to their families, do they automatically become citizens? Do they get birth certificates issued to them? What happens to them? They might not even know when their birthdays are or their yeah. names. I'm, what I'm, happens to these poor kids? I, I'm quite certain that the answer is no, they don't. Um, how they're going to be dealt with in the immigration system is a really good question. I don't have a clue. But, you know, in order to get citizenship, uh, you know, there's there's a, a rather substantial process. Geez, that's a really good question, Patricia. I had not thought about that. You know, what's going to happen to these kids as they grow up? Wow. Because they'll just be lost in the system. Will they? What happens when they go to get a job? Will they have a social security number? Will they right. be able to go to school? Right. Yeah. All those things. Those are really important questions. I don't know the answer to any of them. Okay. In any case, I have two observations. One is that um, that meeting, the recent meeting with Putin, where we had no translator. I believe Melania speaks Russian. Perhaps she was the translator. And that's tongue-in-cheek. And then another thing is, as far as long as people continue to listen to, like, Fox News, as it is now, um, unless we have the Fairness Doctrine reinstated, I don't think a lot of people are going to change their minds because they still view everything as fake news. Yeah. I, I agree, and, and they're continuing to do, as George W. Bush said, uh, catapult the propaganda, and they're doing it really, really well. Patricia, thank you. Excellent points, all. Neela in uh, Redding, California. Hey, Neela, what's up? Hi, good morning. Thanks for answering my call. Um, I was kind of upset with your program yesterday, and I was as upset as you were, and so I, I slept on it last night, and 
came to the conclusion that the positive way to answer this uh, were the children is for um, maybe Trump when he's up there tonight just to come out and say, okay, everybody just call in and tell me where all the kids are. And I mean, and uh, I'm being sarcastic that way, but I think the rebuttal needs to address that, and also that the foster care system needs to be a story needs to be written because it's been privatized. And when I went through the system, uh, I was a ward of the court, and I, I think we had that kind of uh, checks kind of checks and balance on that whole. Now it's been privatized and also different religious groups have taken the mantle of uh, all these children. It varies wildly from state to state, by the way, Neil. And and it's pretty sticky kind of a thing. But I do want to say it in a positive way that we have to maybe appeal to morality and have these people come forward and say, yes, we have these children. You said that it would probably take a year, you know, in your calculation to find where all these children are. At the same time, I think it would take a day or maybe the longest a week for people to come forward and say, yes, we have these children. Yeah, and that's assuming that they do. I mean, if, if some of these children have been sold, if they've been trafficked, uh, you know, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. The adoption system is a racket. In oh, yeah, the whole thing is, a, is an absolute mess. And, and at, you know, to repeat, uh, I forget who tweeted it, uh, but uh, to, to repeat this tweet that I shared with you earlier, um, Hillary Clinton loses 30,000 emails. And by the way, we've, we've since found them. She, you know, <laughs> this is why Comey said, oh, there's no there there. But Hillary Clinton loses 30,000 emails and they say, lock her up. Donald right. Trump has 48,000 people in, in concentration camps and loses thousands of children and nobody is thinking about it. You know, it's, it, it, well, that's something for the, for the, for the uh, immigrant community to worry about. Thank you for the call. Wayne in uh, Redding, California, listening on KFOI. Hey, Wayne, what's up? State of the Union. The thing that I noted this morning in your early comments what reminded me of a comment that a, a friend of mine who was a therapist said, he said that anger is a secondary emotion. It covers up sadness, shame, blame, and fear. And it's symptomatic. And in, in the national discourse, I would say that the anger we're dealing with right now high, is hiding despair, as, as evidenced by the opioid epidemic and the suicide rate, yep. the compulsive grabbing of our Second Amendment as a security blanket against the revenuers or the bad guys coming to get me and mine, I have to have a gun. When, in fact, if they roll the tanks, you and yours are going to be done. Yeah. You know, I look at this and I go, yes, anger is appropriate in this circumstance, but don't forget how despair, how much despair people are dealing with, how much anxiety and fear and all the other things that are under the anger. Yeah, and spot on. No, I, I, I agree with you on all points, Wayne. Very well said. Thank you. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, Patreon.com, slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. Welcome back, Richard, in uh, Evanston, Illinois. Hey, Richard, what's up? Yeah, I've never heard a list of all of the uh, ways the rich gain the system. You know, we hear about welfare, but never rich people welfare, which seems to be, I think, probably even a bigger amount of money. Right. And it's also a tax implication we're ever going to see. But you missed the biggest one, I think, uh, when you were talking about the way the rich get away with things, and that's capital gains versus wages. You know, yeah. tax is a lower rate. That's a, that's a huge one. Yep. 
and uh, depreciation, which I could go into because I actually get, uh, which are taxes that are referred that in most cases are never, ever, ever paid. Yep. There's also deferred income, which uh, the rich get, so yep. that they get it when they leave. There's stock options, which I had, and it's a great way to get around taxes. Yep. And for whatever hasn't been taxed, they create trust. So I would love to see an accountant get on there and just tell us, because we always hear about this, but we had to list all this stuff, and this, I'm sure I've missed 99% of it, as well to that guy, Dave. Yeah, there's there's Richard. a certain threshold, Richard. Maybe you know where that is. I've, I've never been rich enough to hit it, and so I don't know. But there's a certain threshold where you can afford to hire financial planners and things, and basically you can reinvent your entire you know, internal economic status so that you just never pay taxes again. You know, you, your home goes into a, into a trust, your income is, is uh, you know, uh, run through a small company where, you know, an LLC or whatever, you know, quack, quack, quack. I mean, there's, there's all these ways to do this, yeah. and, but you've got to have an income of, what, a couple million dollars a year? No, they, they, half a mil in, 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 is with many of them, and you can go to banks, they'll help you, but they're really helping themselves. So there's a lot of ways. And yeah. the trust, you know, they set those up, for, and, and the family runs it, and then, you know, maybe 15, 20, 30 years later, they dissolve the trust. So you make that, if you, if you make a half million dollars a year, you, you can use these I'm things. I'm sure that there's financial planners that'll take, you know, take less. You don't have sure. quite, quite as much, but there's just all these ways. I don't know the whole tax code. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an art, I'm not a, uh, an accountant. There is no focus in the media. I mean, you know, I, I heard this whole conversation this morning on Joe Scarborough's show about the wealth tax and about the income tax, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. No discussion at all about how the rich shelter their income. How I'm sure Joe Scarborough is sheltering his income because he's got a multi-million dollar income. Richard, thank you for the call. Thanks for sharing your, your insights and your stories with us. It's time, in my opinion, for us to start taxing the billionaires. I mean, again, if I have to pay a wealth tax on my house, why do they not have to pay a wealth tax on their hedge fund, on their Swiss bank account? I don't get it. You know, why is it just my house? Why is it only the middle class in America pays a wealth tax? Can anybody explain that to me? Anyhow, we'll continue the conversation tomorrow. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.